All right, now I know we're live because I see the live red button on here. All right, Brent Leary here. First live stream of the week. You know what it is. It's the BBC. I always have to tell you guys, it's not the guys over in England. It's the dude here in Atlanta, the Brent Broadcasting Channel. So all of a sudden got a double broadcast going on. But anyway, I'm really excited to have Preston So join me. Uh, to talk a lot about voice content and designing for voice content. Uh, he's actually written the book on it. So, uh, Preston, thank you for joining me, man. Hey, Brent. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So you have been designing for voice and, and usability and, and accessibility for a while. So before we jump into the book and the discussion, why don't you give us a little bit of your personal background? Sure. I have a career that's really quite serpentine, a lot of twists and turns. Um, I started out working on websites and web design is my primary uh, kind of outlet for a lot of the work I was doing with customers and various organizations on providing content digitally to consumers worldwide. I think one of the things that's really interesting in the last few years, though, is that voice has become a really important consideration for so many different people across um, the entire industry in terms of technology, in terms of content production. Um, so whereas my background started out in web development, web design, um, web-driven content strategy and content architecture, today I focus predominantly on the realm of voice interfaces um, in addition hey, to Preston, I hate the... To, to stop you, but we were getting a lot of static as you were talking. I don't know if you heard it on your end or not. Nope. But when, when you were talking, you were static, and when I'm talking, there is no static, which is really weird. So I don't know okay. if there's... Well, I'll have to switch off to a different mic then. Um... Okay. Why don't we do that? Because we want to hear what you're saying. <laughs> so why don't we do that? Give your, give it's going to be a worse quality... It's going to be a worse quality mic, but hopefully that sounds a little better. Right. I've had issues with this on StreamYard before, so... Um, nah, this sounds actually sounds way better because there's no static. So we're we're ahead okay. of the game, man. So yeah, let her rip, man. Talk, talk, go back to uh, your background because I want to make sure everybody heard that. Sure. Um, all right. What about? <laughs> let's see. Uh, lost a bit of my mojo there. Um, so yeah, no, my my career has been through a lot of twists and turns. Um, I've started out as a uh, predominantly in the web world, so working with uh, web design, web development for organizations that were looking to make that digital transformation journey from you know, the previous kind of analog print world to uh, the web environment. So that's where I focused a lot of my time in my initial years. Uh, worked with a lot of different organizations uh, around the world to really build up their websites and their web-driven content strategy. But nowadays, especially over the past five years, one of the things that we've seen is that um, content is not just something that ends up on the web. It's not just something that you look at in a web browser or on your computer. It's something you interact with on voice interfaces like Alexa. It's something you interact with on uh, AR or VR devices, for example, immersive content, which is an area that I've written quite a bit about. So these days, my focus, especially where I work today at Oracle, is on enabling organizations to look at how they can deploy content and deliver content and manage content in ways that make sense for that audience that might be encountering that content on not just the web, but also voice, immersive headsets, all sorts of other sorts of user experiences that we have to be thinking about more and more, especially given the ongoing technological quickening in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah, so you, your book that you wrote is Voice Content and Usability 
and you also mentioned you're also a senior director of product strategy to Oracle. Uh, so you've been in, you know, involved, you know, based on what you just said and content creation, uh, you know, for a while and across different formats and different things like that. Uh, talk a little bit about the role of voice in content. We, you know, podcasting has been around for a long time. There was like a lull and all of a sudden it kind of came back with a vengeance and you got, <laughs> you know, companies like, you know, Spotify doing it. You got companies like HubSpot creating their podcast network. It seems like it's on the rise. And I don't know if it was, yeah, I don't know if the, like the voice, the speakers brought back the, the impetus or something happened about three or four years ago where podcast was kind of like this. And then all of a sudden it was like this. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and the role that voice is playing in capturing people's attention today. There's a big difference, uh, as we all know, between uh, voice production that's, um, you know, let's say uh, a podcast driven or recorded, um, because that's something that's a human form of art, right? It's a human kind of uh, expression of content. Um, in terms of the last few years, especially, one of the things that we've seen is that, you know, nowadays, I think it's uh, something like 35% of all American households now have some sort of automated voice system within their homes. Um, and this could be a, you know, a Sonos One speaker, it could be a smart home system, it could be Amazon Alexa, it could be Google Home, it could be Apple Siri on their mobile devices. So at the same time that we've had this really amazing sort of podcasting uh, revolution that's happened over the past few years, we've also seen a completely uh, interesting uh, kind of a complete new wave of automated voice um, and automated speech interfaces that are entirely driven through um, speech synthesis, entirely driven through robots that are speaking English to us or speaking other languages to us. So one of the big things that is a problem with voice interfaces, though, is that if you call a hotline for a hotel or you call a hotline for a major airline, generally speaking, you're interacting with a voice interface that's automated. You're interacting with what's called an interactive voice response or IVR system. And that sort of a system is great for handling transactions. It's great for helping you book a flight, change your flight, check your credit card balance, confirm your room at a hotel. But it's not so great at telling you information that you might want to know in the same ways that we might want to hear from podcasting hosts, for example, or from somebody that we call who's actually a customer service agent on the front line. So voice content is a really compelling and interesting area for a lot of organizations today because it really provides an alternative way for people to access content. And this is not just important for digital consumers and digital natives of today. It's also really important from the standpoint of accessibility and inclusive, equitable uh, user experiences. Because one of the things that we find is websites have always been this very visually rooted, kind of visually structured medium where all this context and all of this content is really focused on the visual deployment of certain things like links and calls to action and buttons and all these things. But for those who um, are members of blind communities, it's not so easy to navigate the web today. You use a screen reader, but as uh, Chris Mari, who's a uh, blind uh, voice technologist, wrote in Wired Magazine a few years ago, screen readers are still fundamentally rooted in those visual structures of the web. So why not turn all of that entire paradigm on its head and say, what if we were to deploy voice interfaces that make it a heck of a lot easier for people to interact with content without having to necessarily deal with potentially the complexity of a website? And this is one of those things that I think is, is really important for a lot of organizations to recognize is that the web has become such an important and overwhelmingly popular 
uh, approach to delivering and consuming content that we oftentimes forget that there are many people who still don't really understand the web who might be elderly. There are a lot of people who uh, might be cognitively, uh, might be living with cognitive disabilities and aren't able to navigate the web as, as many of us might. So one of the most important things that voice content enables is an alternative or a side along conduit for people to access and consume content in ways that are oral and verbal instead of visual and physical. Do you think uh, because, you know, we easily have conversations with humans, um, people definitely want to have conversations with machines to get things done, to get answers quickly, if that's the, you know, a way to get things done quickly. But do you think the um, adoption of using voice in a much more conversational way with the device has been hampered because uh, people don't feel like they can do it just yet and they're kind of apprehensive about you know having a conversation with something they know is not real is not another human on the other line end of the line but yet and still conversational ai has come a long way and there could be lots of use cases where people can get a lot or get what they need from it but they still feel a bit apprehensive about it because they know they're not talking to a, a human on the other end. It's very interesting to think about this from the standpoint of the fact that uh, conversational design author Erica Hall says that, you know, conversation is not a new interface. It's the oldest interface. And there's really a couple of interesting distinctions here that point to what you're saying, Brent. The first is that I think when it comes to conversational AI, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've gone so we've made so much progress when it comes to not only the written realm of communicating with bots. I mean, a lot of times you don't really know necessarily if you're doing a chatbot chat with somebody, whether that's a customer service agent that's automated or not. In terms of the spoken realm though, because that's a much more primordial or a much more sort of naturally rooted human practice, things become a little bit more challenging. And this is a really interesting debate that's currently ongoing between those who are conversational usability researchers and those who are kind of futurists who want to point towards the future where potentially we have what's called the conversational singularity, as Mark Curtis calls it, which is that moment in the future where uh, any conversation that we have with a voice interface is indistinguishable from the kind of conversation you and I are having right now, Brent. But the thing is, I think there's a little bit of an interesting nuance here, because as you said just now, a lot of people feel very apprehensive feel very kind of scared almost of these robots that they're talking to, even though there is really compelling evidence that, for example, voice interfaces are really helpful in people uh, who are facing loneliness or who might have empty nest syndrome. Like voice interfaces have been shown by research to be really helpful for, for people who are experiencing those things. At the same time though, there's that uncanny valley effect. You know, you talk to Alexa, you, you feel very, very clearly and very strongly that even though Amazon and Apple and Microsoft and all these makers are trying so hard to make these voice interfaces indistinguishable from somebody you might talk to on the street, they're not quite there yet. And what's interesting is that there's this interesting um, kind of friction right now between these two camps. There's a, a, one of the most seminal figures in usability research for uh, voice interfaces, Susan Hura. She's done research that actually demonstrates that people actually might prefer to talk with a voice interface that is demonstrably not human because it helps them feel a little bit better at ease and kind of 
that uncanny valley effect is something that you can actually overcome. And this points to something very interesting, I think, which is that if you look at some of the interfaces that we use on a daily basis, computer keyboards, computer mice, video game controllers, these are things that we rehearse. We learn how to move a mouse. We learn how to type at 100 words per minute. But voice and speech and conversation are things that come so organically to us. They're things that we acquire as infants and toddlers and you know, very, very young age. These are things that are not so easy to kind of pigeonhole into this kind of physical or visual interface realm. So I think one of the things that's interesting is, does it even make sense for voice interfaces to be so well-developed in terms of their AI that we can't actually rehearse or practice the sorts of interactions with them as we might with our computers or with our tablets or our phones? It's an interesting kind of philosophical conversation too. Yeah, you know, what? one of the things I've been curious about is, let's say the AI voice assistant you're talking with has kind of the more traditional robotic voice, but it feels like they have actually some some genuine empathy, or at least they're able to relay a feeling of empathy because somebody is, you know, calling out for maybe some help or some assistance, and maybe the voice sounds robotic, but the empathy feels real. Is that more important today? Is relaying a sense of empathy as the voice assistant communicates with the person, maybe even more important than the the robotic sound of the voice? That's a really interesting question. And, and uh, you know, there's not really a set answer, I would say. I mean, there's definitely a lot of conversational designers or, or conversation designers, chatbot uh, kind of, you know, uh, makers who have really kind of thought about this whole issue of how much do you want to help somebody accelerate their achievement of a goal? But how much also do you want to kind of do that really important sense of grounding that happens? Every single human conversation has some level of grounding where you figure out how the other person interacts, you figure out kind of what's a great way to, you know, make sure that the conversation is something that's understandable to both people. Um, and that's a very important kind of natural human instinct. But how do you do that in a voice interface? So what's interesting is that chatbot designer, Amir Shetbot in Designing Bots, uh, really has this interesting classification between uh, a few different types of voice interactions that you might have with the voice interface, which are basically the kind of conversation you might have with Alexa or Siri. And he calls these um, two categories, task-led or transactional and topic-led or informational. Of course, informational voice interfaces or topic-led voice interfaces are very much important to uh, the realm of deploying content, of delivering content. But there's a third type of conversation that you might have with a robot. There's a third type of conversation that you're going to have with somebody at the grocery store as well, which is a, a pro-social conversation, right? The glad handing, the small talk, the sort of grounding, the sort of social um, conversation that you just want to have to check in about how the other person is doing. But of course, I think one of the interesting things is that conversational interfaces, conversational AI, doesn't really have the capacity to want to understand how somebody is doing. They're going to ask, oh, how's it going? Or how are you? Or how's your day been? But does Siri or Alexa or Cortana actually really care? Not really. Um, so it's a very interesting kind of debate where, you know, a lot of times you talk with Alexa, you talk with these devices, and they limit very, very strongly the amount of that sort of, you know, um, empathizing that they'll do. 
And oftentimes it's very gimmicky. Like it gets to a point, for example, if you try to stretch the conversation more and more, uh, there was a funny article I read recently about um, the ways in which Google Home will respond to questions like, are you my friend? Or uh, do you love me? You know, these things that are just conversational things that we have as humans, but are not things that are conversations that we would have with these robots. And the responses that are pre-programmed in those are really interesting. So um, I think it's really important to have at least some semblance of that, because obviously a very mechanical and a very, uh, let's say, metronomic conversation where you just have that back and forth and you just have this kind of very stilted, very static conversation is not the kind of conversation that humans expect. But I think it's also a question of, well, at what point do you really begin to kind of enter into this kind of domain of having to assign certain traits or assign certain personality traits to a device and go almost the entire way towards developing a fully fledged AI that can actually even have, let's say, thoughts of their own. Um, really interesting sorts of ideas, obviously, that relate to the, tech, the, 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 the technology and AI singularity as well. But I think also a bit of a worrying one, because we're not really sure exactly where we want to draw that line. You know, I'd, I'd say most people probably want to have maybe one kind of you know, exchange uh, within a few seconds of asking, uh, oh, hey, how you doing? And then, and then responding appropriately. But beyond that point, unless the person is actually showing interest um, in this voice interface, it's probably not useful to go much further than that, even though a lot of these corporations do have a lot of these techniques built in. Uh, you, you mentioned like the, the chat bots and a lot of uh, use cases when it comes to customer services, particularly self-service, you know, the feeling of self-service is somebody could go and, and, you know, type in a messaging, you know, app and, you know, get some answers, potentially quick questions answered. Um, how different is it to, to design for a voice bot than it is for a chat bot, text-based chat bot? Yeah. And, and this really digs that I think one of the really important distinctions that in some ways is becoming a little bit washed over. So one, as a, as a quick preface to answering this question, one of the really interesting uh, kind of trends that's happening right now is, you know, back in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, there was really no way to build a voice bot without kind of digging into the nuts and bolts of how these things work and really understanding some of the underlying technologies, which are very, very hard and complicated for a lot of folks. Um, nowadays, though, there's been this proliferation of interesting approaches. When I first started with voice interface design, which was about six years ago, there was the Alexa skills kit, which was specifically for Amazon Alexa. And you could use that to build your Alexa applications and skills. And it made a lot of sense for Alexa. But you couldn't you know, create that within the Alexa ecosystem and then somehow export that or move that over to Google Home or Apple Siri or Microsoft Cortana. So nowadays, though, there's a really interesting slew of startups that are emerging. Um, one of them is Bot Society, for example, that enables developers and designers to create this kind of shared agnostic uh, conversational interface that can manifest as a Slack bot or a Facebook Messenger bot or a WhatsApp bot or a voice interface like an Alexa skill or a Google Home or an Apple uh, or a Microsoft Cortana uh, assistant, for example. And a lot of these approaches, though, are wonderful for convenience and wonderful for efficiencies. But they really kind of dig at the question that you just asked, which is, if we design a single experience that's going to be funneled out into both written and spoken conversational interfaces, chatbots and voice bots, 
what does that do to the naturalness of the language? And this, and, you know, this really gets into sort of my area of study back in college, which is linguistics, and the very, very important distinctions, the very important problems that surface when you try to kind of say that, oh, people write the same way that we speak, because that's really fundamentally not true. I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, we say the phrase to whom it may concern a lot less often than we write it, and we say the word literally much more often than we actually write the word in any of the things that we write in emails and so on and so forth. So there's very important distinctions that have to be made between spoken and written conversational interfaces, chatbots versus voice bots, and to call out some of those important distinctions, right? Um, the most important, I think, is that there's, and I actually talk about this in chapter three of my book, um, first and foremost, voice interactions and voice interfaces generally have to be much more efficient and much more brief because of the fact that you don't really have the amount of space that you do in a chatbot. With a chatbot, you can have a chat balloon that kind of, you know, goes like this. You have an infinitely scrollable, you know, back scroll history of previous kind of chats that you, you know, chat interactions you had. But with a voice interface, the currency is not space, it's time. And if you're holding that user captive for way too long and the user is kind of, all right, you know, they're, they're throwing their hands on the table, they're saying, get on with it, you know, I need to get on with my day, you know, that's not a big, uh, that's a really big problem for a voice interface or a voice bot. By the same token, you also want to make sure that there's not a huge amount of context or a huge amount of complexity within the actual utterance itself. And one example that I think is really illustrative of this is that, um, especially recently, there's been a really interesting growth in what's called conversational forms. So oftentimes, if you start up a chatbot chat with, let's say, a, a hotel conglomerate or a airline, it'll pop up with certain things, you know, saying like, oh, do you want to go to reservations or do you want to go to X, Y, Z options? And you can click into those. With a voice interface, however, there's no way to really deploy menus. There's no way to really kind of have visual kind of lists or navigation tools. So that's the second thing you have to think about. And then the third is, of course, the spoken style that is really different from how we write. When we write, we generally speaking are using slightly more formal terminology. We're not using as many colloquialisms. We're not using the kind of slang that we might use on a day-to-day -day basis with our friends at the bar or at a picnic. And those are really important things to consider because if you have an interface that sounds like it's just reading from a script that is clearly somebody wrote that for a written chatbot um, or for let's say a user interface that's on the web itself in a web browser, it's really obvious to the user that it's a, you know, it's a very stilted, very artificial sounding conversation. Um, so those three things I would say, you know, number one is, is that you, know, you really got to watch out for verbosity. You want to be very, very brief and to the point. The second is, of course, that you want to make sure that any sort of context or any sort of understanding of, of the content in its visual frame of mind within the web setting or within a chatbot setting is not something that users have to rely on within a voice setting. And then third, of course, is really focusing on how you write that out. And one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that, yes, you know, writing for a voice bot is a very different process from writing for a chatbot, but they both involve writing as sort of that undergirding, that underpinning uh, skill that's so important to user experience in general. We've just, well, we're still in the, the midst of, you know, the pandemic. Uh, we've been in there for about 18 months. Um, the Im impact on the term digital transformation or the the projects around digital transformation, most people would say they've accelerated 
the need uh, to get them done. And, and it's certain it's, it's, it's changed kind of the scope of what digital transformation is. So what's the impact, what's been the impact on uh, voice design when you think of what's going on in the last 18 months with the general, you know, impact the pandemic has had? Yeah, and and, and you know, for, you know, first of all, of course, I want to make sure to hold space for everyone out there who's who's uh, currently, uh, you know, uh, grappling with uh, long COVID or uh, ha you know has faced uh, loss or uh, you know just unfathomable just sadness and grief throughout this entire pandemic through all the impacts that it's had. Of course, uh, we're we're back in the midst of of experiencing a lot of issues right now um, all over the world. This is a really interesting question. I'll, you know, I'll answer this from two different angles. Uh, the first is that when we started working on, and I just realized that I haven't actually mentioned this uh, case study yet, even on this uh, uh, um, on the show, is um, about five or six years ago, I had the opportunity to work on a team that built Ask Georgia Gov, which was the first ever voice interface for residents of the state of Georgia. Um, also, it was the, you know, really one of the first ever content driven or informational voice interfaces in existence. And the two reasons why we wanted to build this and pilot this project were to serve those demographics, which I mentioned earlier, are oftentimes ignored by or are oftentimes not served as well by those websites that we build. And this is an especially, you know, as we know, a very pressing concern in the public sector, very, very pressing concern within local government. And the two audiences that we wanted to serve were, number one, elderly Georgians who might not be able to necessarily use a website as easily, not, you know, might not necessarily be able to use a computer as quickly, and also might not necessarily have the mobility to be able to travel to a county government office or an agency office. Um, at the same time, we also wanted to focus on disabled Georgians, those who uh, might not be able to use a screen reader on a website as quickly as those who um, are uh, using the website uh, through its visual uh, kind of approach. And also those who uh, really don't have the ability as well because of those uh, issues of mobility, of, mob of mobility, excuse me, to actually travel to an agency office and get their questions answered there. At the same time, we were also dealing with, um, in those days, of course, and still continuing on today, the lack of budget, the, the cash-strapped nature of state and local governments today where budgets are being slashed left and right, and oftentimes those hotline wait times were growing and growing and growing on the phone. So the reason I brought this case study up is I think the coronavirus pandemic has really magnified how certain audiences face not only these really kind of very, very problematic systems of oppression in society, but also really deep barriers to accessing the information and content and transactions that they need. And if you think about, of course, who's been impacted most by the impact of the uh, pandemic and the effects of the pandemic, it is uh, those who are people with disabilities or those who are elderly. Um, and uh, especially if you can't even leave your home, how do you actually get the information you need? So I think we, in some ways, presaged a lot of the work that's happening right now with digital transformation today, where a lot of organizations are now realizing, and this is, of course, modulated through a lot of the work that now we have seen on remote working, on uh, distributed workforces, all of that, but also now how best to serve customers in that B2C angle. How, how do we actually make sure that those who are our customers, those who are our users, those who are um, our, our actual demographics can interact with our content in ways that don't require them potentially to do things that put them in danger? 
And I think there's several things that have accelerated in this regard. The first is along the voice axis, as um, we saw, I think it was last year, uh, smart home systems, uh, smart speakers, sales have gone through the roof. I mean, it's now, you know, 35% of Americans now have a smart speaker at home. Uh, but by the same token as well, we've also had an incredible amount of growth in gaming headsets and uh, gaming technologies. So uh, virtual reality headsets, um, you know, wearable devices. And these really portend, I think, the shift of content away from the written medium, from the visual medium that we are really used to um, over the past few decades into a much more multifaceted kind of context where now we could potentially be interacting with our content through an Oculus Rift or through our smartphones, through our Samsung TV, through our iPhones and our iPads, but also, of course, through an Amazon Alexa. And this really kind of, for me, I think the biggest thing that's happened with the coronavirus pandemic is that it's really kind of accelerated the arrival of that time where organizations now have to understand that it's not just the web anymore. It's not just mobile. It's 15 different things. It's, you know, all of these different considerations. And if you're just now getting to, you know, thinking about web and mobile, you're already behind. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, it, it just brought back to mind this this question that I've had, I guess, uh, since the last uh, six to 12 months. Um, you know, as you're doing these kinds of things, you're doing a live stream conversation. In a lot of instances, these conversations are not only being live streamed, they're being transcribed in real time, creating text data, you know, data that uh, people are can use to help with a lot of uh, different use cases from an AI perspective. What kind of privacy uh, considerations go in to a, you know, what you do when you're doing a design for a voice interactions or a voice uh, bot? Uh, use cases where, you know, people are talking and things hopefully will happen, but that talking and that interaction creates data that can be used for good. It, it could also be used unethically. What kind of design considerations do you do? Do you have with those kind of concerns in mind? I'm so glad you asked this, Brent, because I think that's, of course, on all of our minds today. Uh, right now, I think it's you know, I think one of the things, for, for example, I generally am a, am a, am a very risk averse person when it comes to privacy. I, I, I don't like to have all of my information out there. I don't really um, have a, a too many, you know, smart speakers or voice devices at home. Um, but there are interesting kind of questions that come up. And I think it's really interesting today. It's, it's, it's really fascinating that, you know, for example, the web, right? We've, we've just now gone through, I would say, this narrowing period where we now have uh, very strong regulations. We now have, um, you know, uh, things like GDPR in in the European Union. We now have um, HIPAA in in the, in the uh, U.S. Despite, of course, how it's how it's been mislabeled and and misused to to make arguments that are uh, anti-vaccination. The the really interesting thing about HIPAA and about these privacy regulations, though, is that in the web, there are certain ways to make those things happen that still protect the user. Voice technologies, however, are currently controlled by very rarefied and large corporations that are very similar in many ways to how we actually work with mobile data. So if you think about the fact that it's Amazon, it's Apple, it's Google, it's Microsoft, it's these companies that really have control over what we uh, share with them, it becomes a really interesting consideration because there's um, we've all heard potentially um, about the 
uh, news story that came about, I think it was about three or four years ago, where an Amazon Alexa was caught recording private conversations <laughs> without even being, uh, you know, instantiated to have those, uh, to, to have that listening turned on. And uh, that caused a and lot of- it got of, sent out via email, remember? The exactly. Other party, <laughs> miraculously, that thing got sent out via email, which caused a whole lot of, you know, concern because, it, all right, the recording one is one thing, but then going into your contact list, yeah, finding a list and then emailing it that that really put a lot of hold on people using this stuff for a while. Oh, absolutely, and I think it still it still does. I mean, I'm still very worried of voice technologies myself <laughs> for that reason. Um, and and that's you know I see this as very analogous, for example, to and I know you know about the story of Brent, but you know there was the uh, problem that happened uh, a few years back where uh, Target um, was uh, sending. Uh, one of their email newsletter subscribers, um, you know, basically yeah. new baby products, and were you know basically based on her habits and her shopping habits, was able to sh to actually uh, deduce that she was pregnant before she even knew, which is an incredibly yeah. invasive and violating uh, sort of thing. So, from my standpoint, I I'm very wary to to kind of give my information to these smart speakers and voice systems, and I think everyone should be. Um, for Astro Georgia Gov, for example. We thought about this. We said, you know, there are certain opportunities that are available. For example, imagine being able to help somebody register to vote or renew their driver's license entirely through an Amazon Alexa. But then, of course, you have to think about, well, this information that we're collecting, you know, date of birth, social security, all of these and pieces of information that could end up in the wrong hands. How can we trust in these voice interfaces potentially until there are better safeguards, a lot, much, much like what we have on the you know, sort of sort of web today? and between these sort of corporations that allow for us to trust in the, the transmission of that data. And I think that we're not quite there yet. I think that, um, you know, for example, this is why for Ask Georgia Gov, we focus solely on doing anonymous outlays of information because, you know, let's mm -hmm. face it, there are certain things that people are going to be asking. And if even that information is associated with some sort of personally identifiable information, that could be dangerous. You know, one example of this, for example, is is people who are um, looking for subsidized housing, people who who you know, people who are HIV positive, um, people who are reliant on Medicare, Medicaid. These little pieces of information can contribute to and intensify some of the oppression that a lot of uh, these populations that we serve as users face in our society already. So with privacy, I think it's it's a really important thing that um, to, to you know unless you're absolutely confident and unless you really know what you're doing, um, I would steer clear of, of sort of doing anything with uh, PII uh, within the context of a voice interface, at least for the time being. I think what 20, uh, 2021 is the decade anniversary for Siri launching in the iPhone, and we're coming up on what, seven years since uh, Alexa came out? So we've, we've had a lot of years uh, using these things. Are we where we where you expected us to be with voice being a, a piece of the, the interaction channel between consumers and vendors? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, I think there's, from the maker standpoint, I think so. And what I mean by that is, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've got these really great tools that are out there, Bot Society, these new startups that are developing really designer-friendly tools that allow for you to do like the sort of old, you know, Dreamweaver or Microsoft front page approach to building websites, 
you take that over to a voice interface, and suddenly you don't have to be writing, let's say, very low-level hardware code or, or writing in, you know, let's say, natural language processing or natural language understanding into a, into a bot. At the same time, though, I think there's a long ways away. And I think that we're not really quite where I thought that we would be at this point. But I think a lot of that is also because AI itself is not quite as far along as a lot of people uh, necessarily thought. And one of, the, one of the reasons for that is that we are experiencing this time right now where a lot of the voice interfaces that we've built are fundamentally still clearly digital automata that don't really have an actual means of communicating in a way that really we can hear ourselves in. And this is the, the direction I go towards the end of my book. In chapter six of my book, I really delve into this whole notion of, well, when it comes to a voice interface that we feel is modern, that we feel is innovative, that we feel is actually something that's usable, what does that mean? Because of the fact that, okay, all of us, we have hands, you know, um, we have fingers to type on keyboards. And generally speaking, the way that we type on keyboards is not too different from one person to the next. But the ways in which we have conversation are absolutely very different from one person to the next. Um, you know, one example of this, for example, you know, is that you look at some of the bilingual communities in South Texas or in New York City, and you hear people literally switch between Spanish and English in the middle of a sentence. Um, okay. Or yeah. people who, uh, you know, yeah, exactly, people who are in uh, Mumbai or in New Delhi who switch between Hindi and English mid-sentence, or switch between Marathi and English in mid-sentence. And these are populations that don't hear themselves within these voice interfaces, let alone um, all, the, all the communities of color who also don't feel that they can hear their own sort of dialects and their own sort of colloquialisms and their own sort of manners of speaking within these voice interfaces. There's some interesting steps in the right direction that kind of go partially there, but not really. I mean, the first, of course, is um, I think I've been very surprised and happy uh, about what Waze is doing in terms of allowing you to kind of configure those those voices that read out those statements like police reported ahead or uh, uh, vehicle on shoulder or keep left. And I remember I was on an expressway uh, heading to the airport uh, before the pandemic and, and my Lyft driver um, was telling me about how he had his daughter record these uh, statements so that you know, she could, so that he could hear her saying accident reported ahead or some of these things, which is a really kind of interesting way to uh, uh, um, configure ways. There's also, of course, new services that are emerging like Amazon Polly. Amazon Polly is really interesting because it will take a, some input of written text, like a paragraph or a page or whatever, and it will read it out in a British accent or a South African accent or an American accent, a woman's voice, um, all sorts of various kind of gauges that you can twist and, and play around with. But still fundamentally, of course, that's written text that's not necessarily been optimized for speech. There's no algorithmic way to turn written text into something that's written in a more spoken style. But there's also that kind of big worry that I have, which is that, you know, when it comes to voice interfaces actually being great and actually getting to that point of excellence that we expect, in some ways, I think it's almost impossible. And I think it's almost a paradoxical statement to kind of say that voice interfaces will be at this level of optimum behavior for everybody. Because the way that a voice interface sounds to me is going to be very different to the way that a voice interface sounds for somebody else. And I think that's really engendered by the fact that if you look at Alexa or Siri or Cortana or Google Home, generally speaking, the default voice, the default identity that comes out of this voice interface is somebody who sounds a lot like a cisgender, straight, white woman who speaks with a general American or middle American dialect. 
and there's not necessarily a whole lot of space for people who are uh, speakers of English as a second language or people who are code switchers, as I mentioned before, who switch between English and Spanish right in the middle of a sentence or, you know, trans and non-binary communities who switch between straight and queer sort of modes of speech in terms of how they actually interact with each other. Until we hear those sorts of toggles, until we hear that sort of reality that we have reflected in those voice interfaces, I don't think we've actually reached that lofty goal. And what worries me today is that we're facing a situation that's unprecedented with the pandemic where a lot of these customer service agents, a lot of these frontline customer service workers are losing their jobs in favor of a more automated mechanical voice interface approach. But most of these people that are losing their jobs, that are being laid off, that are that are being uh, superseded by voice interfaces at these corporations, they're generally people who live in the global south. They're generally people who are from the Philippines or Indonesia or India who speak English in ways that should also be reflected in the voice interfaces that we have today, if we so want them to. Somebody who is uh, a Filipino-American should be able to hear a voice interface that sounds Filipino-American as well uh, on a voice interface. So while I think that in some ways things have gotten really great for voice interface designers, I think for voice interface users, we've still got a long ways to go. And it's gonna be a few decades, I think, before we even can kind of get yeah. to that point. Yeah. Well, you mentioned one thing that it's that it does sound like empathy is a, a kind of a critical piece because all the things you just illustrated, somebody who speaks a different language maybe wants to hear somebody on the other end answer in that language. And that's a, a certain level of empathy uh, that you know maybe will help with adoption and usage of these kind of technologies, voice related technologies. But I guess there's so many different components. There's because I think, you know, if you don't have the AI right, if, if, if you're not able to answer the question with an answer that's going to be helpful, you know, that's going to turn people off. And that's probably going to turn people off more than, you know, answering, you know, with somebody who doesn't necessarily sound like them. But there's so many of these components. Uh, where are we going to be like, you, you said decades. It, it, that's a long time off. Man. <laughs> where are we going to be like... Uh, two or three years from now sure. with voice design and, and voice adoption. And and I, I remember what you said too about a lot more of these devices were bought, but it seems like a lot more of those devices were bought by people who already had them. And then the use cases, they, they, they haven't spread out tremendously. They've been more focused, you know, in certain aspects of using your voice to, to you know, communicate with these devices. Do you see a you know in the next couple of years a broadening out of you know the different ways think we use these things and the different interaction types that we have with these things uh or is it going to be a, just a slow slog across the board till we get to like that 10 year mark you were talking about great question uh <laughs> oh gosh you know Obviously, I don't want to say anything that's going to be a prediction that might come back to bite me in the butt here, but uh, I certainly think that there's going to be improvements in certain regards. I mean, the first is that, you know, there's there's definitely going to be improvements when it comes to what I call the democratization of voice interface design. So uh, what, I, what I mean by that, of course, is that nowadays, if you're somebody who doesn't know how to create a website, if you're somebody who doesn't write code, if you're somebody who doesn't actually um, you know, do anything that, that is related to computer science, you can today create a voice interface, which is really the first time that we've ever 
uh, done that before. I think it's been really rare that we actually have um, that ability. Uh, the second thing that I would say is that I think, uh, oh, there we go, we got Brent back. Uh, the second thing I would say is that, um, you know, we certainly will have more use cases emerging. And I think Ask.Georgia.gov and a lot of the new content-driven voice interfaces that are emerging are very much pointing in this direction, are very much portending this wave of informational or, or content-driven voice interfaces that, that are still very rare, that are still very rare. You know, I think we still are very much focused on the idea of voice interfaces as something that's used to turn off our lights, you know, when we're done with them, to, to switch on our, you know, start our, start our oven preheating if you've got a smart home system, um, let somebody in at the door, which is the most recent commercial I've seen, um, and uh, do, do other things that are really, you know, kind of not really that sort of complete concierge that voice interfaces were supposed to be, right? If you look at some of the more aspirational uh, media about voice interfaces, for example, you look at, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey's HAL, or you look at uh, Star Trek, uh, the voice of Major Barrett in Star Trek, um, or if you look at especially some of the sort of Black Mirror episodes that have come out recently. It's not just that we want a assistant that can talk to us about doing this transaction or that transaction or doing this task on our behalf. We also want to be able to have them actually potentially schedule out our day, do things that are much more complex and multifaceted. And one example of this, of course, is, well, I'm don't, I don't want to just, you know, buy tickets to a movie. I don't want to just buy tickets to uh, see Cruella or In the Heights. I want to actually find out about that movie. I want to find out what that score was in Rotten Tomatoes. I want to find out who the cast and crew are. And a lot of times these voice interfaces are still not equipped with that kind of capability. There's a paradox, though. There's a really interesting conflict, though, here, because right now we've seen a bit of segmentation happening. For example, ask Georgia Gov, uh, you know, if you go to, let's say, AMC theaters, right? or you go to Hilton Hotels or Delta Airlines, if you want to ask Delta Airlines about Hilton Hotels or you want to ask AMC theaters about, you know, um, so, you know, some sort of other theater chain, they can't help you. So what we're seeing here is this interesting conflict between how these voice assistants and voice interfaces are trying to compete against each other to be more and more broad in terms of their coverage of information across the web and transactions across the web, but also the fact that Ask Georgia Gov, for example, is only going to answer you questions about the state of Georgia or topics that are relevant to Georgia citizens, uh, to residents of Georgia. So it's a really interesting question. I think what we will see, though, is we're going to see some sort of next phase of voice interfaces here in the very near future that are going to be trying to wash away some of these lines in the sand between topical and transactional considerations. And also, we'll begin to see much more content-driven voice interfaces, which, of course, if you want to be able to build those sorts of interfaces, you should buy my book, Voice Content Usability. <laughs> that was that was such a great plug, man. That was awesome <laughs> way you slid that in there. No, that, that's great. It's been a great conversation. I don't, I don't know if you've been noticing uh, lots of really great comments going on out there as well. You know, one thing I, I've been thinking about, um, let's say more corporate um, interactions. And, and from a call center or a contact center, you know, traditionally the goal of the contact center is to try to get people off the phone as quickly as possible. You know, it, it, that could be problem resolving or that could be moving it to, you know, to the next level. But it's always been how do we get people, how do we get off the, you know, get people, you know, connected or disconnected and on to the next one? Because traditionally with a human element, a human, you know, contact center agent, um, that the longer they're on, you know, that's kind of a cost, you know, of course. 
Um, and, and they're trying to kind of do the mix of answering it efficiently enough and, and effectively enough with, you know, with limiting the amount of resources needed, you know, to do that. And that has been the draw. But with this technology, that kind of goes out the window. You don't necessarily want to limit the interaction uh, because there really is no, you know, variable cost because the technology, the AI is not a human. So you don't have to worry about them being on the phone forever. And basically, you don't have to worry about scaling, bringing in more humans, because if everything is designed right, you can have multi, you know, lots of people talking to the AI assistant uh, and, and being able to handle these requests. So the goal has actually changed because you, you really actually would like to be interacting longer with the customer as long as you are getting their need filled. But that, that level of engagement becomes a benefit and, and, and getting them on and off the phone does not build that engaged, long, potentially long-lasting relationship that if you have the AI right and the right empathy involved with the, with the uh, assistant, you don't mind them going back and forth with the customer as long as the customer is happy with the end result because that is actually building more of an engagement level than if you're just trying to rush them off you know, quickly. That's a whole different mindset. And so I'm guessing that's part of the, the switch that has to be a part of this visual uh, or uh, voice design that you're, you know, going to, you're talking about moving into, you know, the, the upcoming years, because it's just such a, found, a fundamental change, uh, at least for that call center uh, use case, you know, trying to rush them off the phone versus hey, we got a voice assistant, let them talk. If it makes them feel better, give them the right voice, you know, give them whatever it needs to, to have that interaction end, you know, in a win-win. A you know, they get their answer, they feel fulfilled, and that keeps them around longer as a customer. It seems like there's a, it's a mind and a cultural shift in organizations that has to go along with designing for those kinds of interactions. I couldn't agree more. I think there's definitely, uh, you know, as as we all know, those those call center staffers, those frontline customer service workers, they are their job performance is rooted in, um, you know, how many of those calls they can handle in a given day, uh, for better or worse. And and it's that sort of commoditization of time or or uh, uh, that that sort of efficiency of time that is a very important focus for for everyone who's involved in serving customers. But I think what you've mentioned here, Brent, is really interesting because, because it really points to, as you mentioned, the sort of other side of voice interfaces. And we touched on a lot of different aspects, I think, of what uh, uh, Randy Harris, um, in, in his book on voice interface design, calls the notion of habitability, right? We want to be able to inhabit these user experiences in the same way that we inhabit a home that has certain you know, coziness to it and has certain you know, bells and whistles to it that we enjoy. Um, voice interfaces should be the same thing. Voice interfaces should be uh, really kind of driving customer engagement in a way that makes sense to that customer. And that can be things that really rely on a lot of these interesting elements, as we said, like modulating the voices that are speaking, um, changing some of the ways in which you interact with the customer, using more pro-social interactions as opposed to some of the more rapid fire approaches that you see in voice interfaces. So I think it's a really interesting thing to think about, well, 
also because these companies, going back to the topic of privacy, they're probably gathering very important information about sort of how you respond and 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 you know how successful the interface is based on the amount of time they can spend with you. Um, but I think habitability is something that's important to all user interfaces, right? It's not just unique to voice. And I think you know one of the things that we we know as as people that that serve customers from a variety of different backgrounds is, you know, you want to make sure that um, every single type of user, every single demographic of user that you serve, is somebody that can feel like they're inhabiting a space or time or or uh, sort of you know this this sort of environment that they can feel comfortable in for a long period of time. And ultimately, that's the whole reason why we have conversations in the first place, right? The whole reason we want to have a have an interaction with a voice interface or have a conversation with another human being is because we want to actually feel like we're having ourselves heard. We want to actually see ourselves in a other person as well. And that's something I think that is at the core, of course, of what makes voice interface design so compelling. Preston, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, where can people go to get the book again? <laughs> Voice Content Usability was just published, just released on June 22nd. It's uh, the first ever book on voice content, voice content design, voice content strategy. It's also the first book about voice from my publisher, A Book Apart. So right now you can go to abookapart.com and get the book. Uh, it's uh, available right now. It's gotten some great responses, some great reviews from folks in the industry. Um, and I do a lot of writing on voice as well. So if you want to learn more about some of these topics without necessarily buying the book or you want to get a little preview of the book before you buy it, you can go to my website, Preston.so, where I write a lot about voice interfaces and a lot about conversation design. You can also check out my Twitter at Preston.so, my LinkedIn. Um, at, same thing, Preston. So, um, and uh, of course, uh, once again, a bookapart.com is where you can uh, find my book and uh, check out some of the things that we've been talking about today. This has been an awesome conversation. I've, I, there's been a conversation that we were having on screen, but you know, I'm just looking at a, you know, John Reed, uh, Alan Berkson, Esteban Kolsky, Brian Summer. I'm probably missing some folks, uh, but it's been a great conversation that's going on. Check out the comments. And uh, press once again, thanks again. We definitely, definitely got to do this again. And hopefully, maybe we'll even get to do something like this uh, next year at a you know physical location. Who knows? Maybe, maybe that'll happen. We'll see. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brent. And I'd love to come back to talk about my next book, Immersive Content and Usability. Um, yeah, you, you heard it here first, everyone. Um, <laughs> but hey, it's been such a pleasure today. And uh, looking forward to chatting more with you in the future. All right. Take care. And... Thanks for you checking it out. Thanks for all the comments. And I guess I'll be back on Thursday with CRM players. See you then. Thanks again.